take your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse number 18, we come to what is the first family of the Bible. I'm going to begin a series this week entitled Family Matters. Family does matter in this day and age. It's always mattered. In fact, when God decided to institute the family, it was the first thing that He ordained and instituted in civilization. He said, here's a family. And then later came the government. And then later came the church. But God said the first institution would be the family. And so that's what I'll speak on today, the institution of the family. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Bible says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Interestingly enough, in the first chapter, we find God creating things every single day. Day one, day two, day three, day four. And on every day, at the conclusion of that day, God says, it is good. It is good. He makes the animals, it's good. He makes the earth, it's good. He makes light, it's good. Everything's good. And then at the conclusion on the seventh day, He says, it is very good. Everything is good. To wrap it all up, it's very good. But in chapter 2, it starts out here and it says in verse 18, It is not good. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, to the fowl of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. If you spend any time in church, you've certainly heard the phrase, you can't take it with you when you go. You can't take it with you when you go, I recently heard a story that kind of uh, made that point quite comically. It was said of a rich man who was coming to the end of his life that he had made one final wish and testament. And that was that he would be buried with all of his finances. He wanted it all in his casket. He wanted to be buried with it all. Now this put his wife in a bit of a bind because if she puts all of his wealth in there, then she has nothing for her after he's gone. But as he came to the end of his life... That's what, he t- that's what he wrote out. I want to be buried with all of my wealth. Well, friends around the family knew this predicament that the wife was in. So they were very curious after the man died. And one of the friends came up to the lady there at the uh, at casket ceremony as they're lowering him to the ground. And they said, uh, uh, did you do what he asked you to do? Did you leave him with all of his money? Did you put it there in the casket? And uh, the lady said, I sure did. Uh, surprised to hear that she had honored such a foolish and silly final wish, 
She said, you mean to tell me you took all of his wealth and put it in his casket? She said, yep, I wrote him a check, put it in his pocket. (laughs) Kind of makes the point quite certainly, doesn't it, that you can't take it with you when you go. There's some things that you can work for and labor for and earn in this life, but no matter what you do, you can't take it with you when you go. But I want to talk to you about something that you can take with you when you go. I want to talk about something that's temporal in this life that carries over into eternal life. Your family. Your family. The Philippian jailer was a wise man after Paul and Silas had been singing praises. A great earthquake shakes the prison. He thinks all the prisoners have escaped. But when he goes in there, he sees they're all still there. And because of this, he has a, a broken heart. And he realizes that these men are not just like any other prisoners. And he looks at them and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? How can I have what you have? Sirs, what can I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He was a wise man for asking that question. But he was an even wiser man for then taking these same men that testified to him into his home. You know the Bible says that that Philippian jailer got saved, but his whole house got saved? You know it says that they all got saved and baptized? Here's a man that realized that your family can be taken with you when you go. Wow. So in that sense, your investment in your family is an eternal one. It carries over from the temporary into the eternal. But we must be clear today that in chapter 2 of of Genesis, there is a family, but no children. Not yet. This is the first family. Families don't begin with children. Children. They begin with a husband and a wife. That's the family. And may I encourage you parents of children, small children maybe, or even older children, don't make your marriage about your children. Because what happens when the children are gone, you'll have no marriage. Your your marriage pre-existed the children. And it will last longer than the children... So though your family incorporates the children, it is not all about the children. This morning we come to the first family and we find that God places a high value and importance on marriage. It's interesting to me that we get two chapters in the Bible and we find God essentially officiating the first wedding ceremony. It's interesting to me that Jesus Christ, when He began His earthly ministry, He decided to perform His very first miracle, where? At a marriage. At a wedding. God honors marriage. God blesses marriage. God created marriage. See, marriage matters if your family matters. And so today we look at the institution of the family, the marriage covenant before God. I want you to see, first of all, this morning, there is an intentional design. Look back at verse number seven of chapter two. The Bible says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Now that word formed there means to fashion. It sort of speaks of sculpting something, carefully crafting it, so that it's something more than it began to be. The Bible says that uh, Adam was made from dirt. 
Wives, don't hold that high of expectations for your husband. He doesn't come from much. He comes from the dust of the ground. And yet God fashioned him and formed him. And we live in a society today that places value on you if you are beautiful. We live in a society today that places value on you and gives you worth if you are influential or successful or powerful or in some way admirable. But the Bible says that you are valuable because of your Creator. Like artists that would in the bottom corner of their pictures often put their signature, the signature of Almighty God is written within your DNA. God formed you, the psalmist put it like this, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God took His time on you. Don't allow society to tell you what beauty is. You know what's funny? From one culture to the next, beauty is a moving target. Here we lay under the sun to get dark. In Asia, they sell bleaching products. Why? Because beauty is very subjective. God values an inward beauty far more than He values this outward beauty. The world has people chasing a beauty that is unattainable, but even if you attain it by your own estimation, you cannot keep it. The world values a beauty that that fades with age, God values a beauty that grows with age. See, God does not mind the beautiful, but His estimation of what beautiful is is totally different than ours. We find God formed people and we are made valuable because of the intentional design of our Creator. Years ago, well actually just earlier this year, I'll tell you the years ago part of the story, but earlier this year in January, I believe it was January 21st, uh, a classic car sold at auction for a record-setting amount of money. Now this was a 427 Cobra. It was owned by Carroll Shelby himself. Now Carroll Shelby, you may recognize his last name. He kind of helped build the original Shelby Mustangs. He owned this particular car, and at the Meacham Auto Auctions earlier this year, his personal 427 Cobra sold for $5.94 million at auction. That's a lot of money. That's more money than I ever looked at. I mean, I I went in my mom's purse the other day, but, you know, besides that time... I mean, that's a lot of money. Uh, We can't even fathom that much money. You know what's ironic about that? When that car originally rolled off the dealership, it was worth $7,500. Why is that car so incredibly valuable? Because of who owned it. We are not made valuable because of what we can provide to this world. No wonder our teenagers have total depression. And they always feel like they're living up to standards to supermodels that are themselves paintbrushed once they're on the magazine cover. No wonder they have these, these terrible thoughts about themselves. But if we could realize that we are not made valuable because of what we provide or, or what we can produce, we are made valuable because God Almighty crafted us. We are valuable because of our intentional design. 
Verse 7 tells us that man is created from the dust of the ground. Verse 21 tells us that woman is, is formed using the rib of Adam. You are... Uh, ladies are made out of something of a significantly better quality than what man is made out of. You see, if you go to Chili's this afternoon, they'll sell you some baby back ribs. It'll cost you about $12 a plate. You go out here in the garden uh, bed and just pick up a bucket full of dirt. So you tell me which one's more valuable. Interestingly enough, I recently did a study on this. Woman is the only creation made by God, as far as I can tell, that is not out of the dirt. She is unique in her design. You want to know why men and women can't get on the same page? We don't come from the same stock. And and so uh, the Bible tells us that all the beasts of the field and all the creatures, uh, they were fashioned out of dirt. The Bible is silent on how the animals of the sea were, were made. But I will tell you, woman is unique. But we are all uniquely made by our designer. But what does this mean that God crafted us and made us special and unique? Well, the reason we are independent and unique from all other creation is verse number 26 of chapter 1. God says, let us make man in our own image. And the Bible goes on to say, in the image of God created He male and female. So both male and female find their inherent value because they are modeled after the Creator Himself. We live in a day of uh, equality, of people crying for equality, of men's rights and women's rights and racial rights. Listen to me. We all are valuable, whether you are male or female, whether you are black or white, we are all valuable because we are all designed after the Creator Himself. Let us make man in our own image. But what does that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that we look like God. There's a term, it's a theological term, it speaks of an anthropomorphism. What that is, is it means we're attributing to God humanistic characteristics, meaning God's hands. Have you ever heard the song, He's got the whole world in His hands? That's an anthropomorphism. That means that we attribute to God humanistic characteristics. The Bible says the the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. Is that literal or figurative? Well, I would hope it's uh, figurative because that means that God's literally got his hands wrapped around the king strangling him. I wish that would happen in America, but whatever. Uh, No, that is a figurative symbol. An anthropomorphism, the reason we do that is it helps us understand a spiritual realm. The Bible makes very clear, God is a spirit. And if we're going to worship Him, we have to worship Him in spirit and in truth. I've got bad news for you this morning. God doesn't have physical hands. God doesn't have physical feet. The physical features that are detailed in God's Word help us to identify with a spiritual realm that physical beings have no uh, previous experience with. So it doesn't mean that we look like God. What does it mean? It means that we are modeled after His triune nature. I know we're getting deep for a Sunday morning, but God is a triune being. He's comprised of three different persons, all making the same God, 
The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Friend, this is undeniable. This is not a New Testament concept. This goes all the way back to very, very famous Hebrew concepts in the Old Testament. God is a Spirit. God became flesh. And God is the Father. All of these make up the same God. They are one, and yet they are uniquely distinct from one another. And God says, let us make man complex in his nature like we are. That means that you are flesh. You have a physical consciousness. You know when you feel that physical consciousness when your kids leave Legos on the floor? You become very physically conscious at that moment. When you stub your toe, that's physical consciousness. Uh, we enjoy pleasure through physical sensation. We, enjoy, we endure pain through physical sensation. God made us physical beings. But we are also personally conscious. Now here's what's unique. God takes muscle tissue, just just tissue, and He makes it in some way become conscious at a level above what human beings can create. We call what humans can create artificial intelligence as compared to legitimate intelligence that only God can make. Somehow our brains have the capacity, though made up of tissue, to reason and to have thoughts. You have a physical person, that is your body and the muscles and the blood that flows through your veins. But you have a consciousness about you, an awareness. You're different than the person seated next to you. You are uniquely you. Some for the good and some for the bad. But you are unique. And that is a personal consciousness. That is what the Bible calls your soul. It's the seat of the emotions. It's where our logic resides. We can think, we can even feel on an emotional scale. But here is where man stands different from all other creation. We are a spiritual being as well. We're spiritual. There is something deep within the heart of man that craves worship. That desires to know something more. Here recently we've seen news headlines and people are desiring to know more uh, about UFOs. Right? It's ironic to me that these same people talking about UFOs are vehemently denying the existence of an almighty being. And yet they're like, but there's probably aliens out there. No, there's no God. There's no way there could be a God. But aliens we can buy. What? People say, well, I'm an atheist. No, you're not an atheist. You're an atheist. An atheist suggests that based upon their limited experience in life, they have reasonably concluded that they can say without a shadow of a doubt, there is no God. Many of them have never left their county. Most of them never have left their state. More than most of them have never left the borders of their own country. And yet they in their pride and their arrogance say, no, I know there is no God. They've never been so far as India, but they can tell you there's no God. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. You know why the Bible says that? Because nobody truly says that. He is an atheist. When you say you can prove, you can conclude that there is no God, you are saying, I am all-knowing. 
I sit on the throne of my own heart. I know there is no God. You're not an atheist, you're an atheist. There's a difference. For any human to say that they can say without a shadow of a doubt that there is no God is the height of absurdity. We don't know everything. We are by our nature limited beings. And yet, even when you go to native civilizations that have no exposure from outside influences, what do you find? You find them always having a spot for worship in their culture. Why? Many times they worship the sun or they worship the rain. Why? Because even the nature that God has created testifies that He exists. The heavens declare the glory and the handiwork of Almighty God. You can't deny it. We are uniquely spiritual beings. And God intentionally designed us as such. Do you think the designer that took that much care in making us, then made marriage an afterthought? As if the God who works out all of these parameters for how He's going to uniquely design you, He says, yeah, and then we'll just throw in there something to make them happy. No, marriage itself has an intentional design. And you know what that intentional design is? The Bible says in verse 24, I want to be very clear. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. Man, masculine. Wife, feminine. And they shall be one flesh. You know what marriage is? By the designer himself, one man, one woman, for all of their life. You say, what about King David? Didn't he have multiple wives? What about King Solomon? Didn't he have multiple wives? Yeah, they were wrong. They were wrong. From Genesis chapter 2, God said, one man, one wife. That's, that's what man needs. Nobody said these men were inherent. Nobody said these men were infallible. They made mistakes too. Just read, read any of their writings. Psalm 51 tells us a little bit about the mistakes David made. But God said from the beginning, one man, one woman. You know what would be hilariously foolish? To walk up to Carroll Shelby and tell him how he could better design his own car. Carroll Shelby, an expert in automotive mechanics. You know, Shelby, you just didn't do a good enough job. You don't go to the designer and the creator and suggest to them that they should have done something different. And yet we come to marriage and we assess that we have the right to manipulate it? Church is not our thing. We can't do church the way we want to. This is God's place. This is God's institution. But so too is marriage. And it is not up for debate how it should function. Marriage is between one man and one woman for their life. So there's an intentional design. There's an instructed duty. Verse number 9 interesting. Out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God makes it grow. This is pretty cool. Verse number nine. God's the one doing the growing. And any farmer can testify. (laughs) I need God to help it grow. But verse number 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So God would make it grow. Man was to maintain it. Not to let it get out of control. They were to dress it and to keep it. 
It's very important you realize here that work was not a part of the curse. The curse, you know, when God said, well, out of the sweat of thy brow will you eat of the dust of the ground. Meaning, you're going to have to work when you get food now. Before I made it grow, but now you're going to have to work for it. That was part of the curse. The curse brought toil and strife. Before, Adam was still called to work. Work isn't a part of the curse. In fact, the Bible says work is a good thing. Work is beneficial, especially for men. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. For even when we were with you, this we commanded, that if any work not, neither should he eat. Well, that doesn't seem very charitable. That doesn't seem very benevolent. Well, that's just what the Bible says. That there is a good thing about a man putting his hand to the plow. First Thessalonians chapter 4. And that ye study to be quiet and do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Well, that's not a spiritual verse. No, it's a very practical verse. It's good for a man to go to work. It's good to work. It's healthy to work. It's fulfilling to work. The other day, I heard that Chili's shut down because they didn't have enough waiters and waitresses. They couldn't staff their own restaurant. Cheddar's, a brand new restaurant, opened in Burleson. Everybody's excited about it. Couldn't open because they couldn't staff their own facility. What we are watching now is the product of a generation who has had everything handed to them. We are watching people not realize the inherent value in working. They do not know how to value the dollar because, frankly, they don't know how to earn a dollar. And now we are watching them place their faith in a government that regardless of what candidate sits in the office, it is a corrupt government. What's sad is these people have more faith in their government than Christians have in God. They say, yeah, just keep sending us money. We'll trust you. We don't need to work for it. This is anti-biblical. It is good that a man would be able to work with his hands. Proverbs chapter 12 verse 27 says, The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting. It, it paints the picture of a man who goes and takes something, but does not utilize the resource. And this is the reason why. But the substance of a diligent man is precious. Meaning, he worked for it, so it had value to him. No wonder we have people that are just wastefully... They wait till their next check comes in to go buy their next Apple product. It is the height of absurdity. And this is the generation we live in now. It is good for a man to work. And you say, well, are you one of those anti-woman workers? No. Have you read Proverbs 31? That chick could pastor this church. I'm talking about she's buying fields and selling fields. She's crafting things. It, it, it even says, I read it last night just to revise my memory. It even comes to the point where it says, she's not afraid when the snow comes for her whole house is clothed. Meaning she's prepared, man. She's got it all under control. She works, she cooks, she does whatever the family needs. You say, are you anti-women worker? No, what I am anti is women or men neglecting their duties at home so that they might pursue a career outside of it. You say, are you, are you against men working? No, I think it's good that a man would work. But I don't think he should work at the expense of his family. 
I don't think it's good that a woman would work at the expense of their family. Even if you read Proverbs 31, you come to the end and the Bible says, Her children riseth and calleth her blessed. Her husband honors her. Why? Because all of what she did was at the benefit of her family. She cared and loved for her family. And so it is good that man would work and God designed us not to just sit there and make googly eyes at one another in marriage, but that we would work together to cultivate an environment where our children can grow up in safety, being cared for and provided for, and that they can grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is an instructed duty. I want you to see thirdly an important declaration. Verse number 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet. See, God said, I, I've made man and an almighty sovereign God could see what mistake Eve would make. But he in his wisdom saw that man left to his own devices would screw it up worse than Eve could. He said, it's not good that man should be alone. Why were we created? People often ask the question, what is the purpose of man? Why am I here? The Bible says in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, listen, for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Why are you here? To please God. But God is not some grand puppet master that just gets pleasure out of making us jump when He tells us to jump or making us do what He wants us to do just because of His amusement. God created us to be social beings. We need each other. We need interaction. One of the cruelest forms of punishment in all humanity is isolation. Solitary confinement. Just lock them in a room to let their mind wander. It is incredibly cruel. Because man will go insane if he does not have social interaction. God designed us to operate this way. But there's a deeper level than just, oh, God created us to interpersonally link. You know, like social networking links. That's not it. God designed us as social beings so that we might interact and have fellowship with Him. So... We have this deep desire for fellowship. But that deep desire ought to lead us to a fulfilling relationship with Jesus Christ. And it is in Him we find ultimate fulfillment because He is the friend that sticketh closer than any brother. He is the one that promises never to leave us nor forsake us. In this life, no matter how good of friends you think you may have, things can happen where they're not your friend any longer. But Jesus is the friend that will never leave you alone. And so the ultimate answer to all of man's social needs is Christ. And then God gives us the benefit and the blessing of each other. And I've done a study on this, and you can question it if you want. To me, the greatest relationship that God gives is not father-son, mother-daughter. It is husband and wife. And the reason for that is fathers don't choose sons except in terms of adoption. Mothers don't choose daughters. But yet you go through a courting process with your wife. I 
talked to one of our families here the other day. They said that they were pretty much getting married just a couple weeks into their relationship. And that's fine if that's you, that's great. But you go through a courting process so that you may know whether or not that person is worthy of your love. Now we don't say that part, but what's dating all about? You're trying to see if she's crazy, and you're trying to see if he's possessive. That's fine. But at the end of it, when you stand at the marriage altar, you know what you're saying? I have chosen, taking all things under consideration, that I will love this person for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, for sickness and in health. Even yesterday as I heard those vows being recited by Garrett, I thought to myself of those that I've watched caringly and lovingly nurse their loved one on their deathbed. What a huge and gigantic promise we make standing at the marriage altar when we say, in sickness and in health. Don't take it lightly, man. There is no more profound relationship that really illuminates to us the way that God loves us and that He chose to love us, offering nothing back to Him. If you betray Him, He still loves you. That's the marriage covenant. See, we have an important declaration that man was not designed to operate in and of himself. He needs that interpersonal link. And what I find is, as you have your marriage relationship lived out in your home, this is for those of you with children still in your home, your children are taking notes. Don't miss this point if you have children in your home. Your children's marriage will be acted out in the first several years in the same way yours is. They will do what you do. Your son will treat his wife the way you treat your wife. Moms, your daughter will treat your hu- their husband the way you treat your husband. The Bible talks about how children are arrows in the hand of an archer. You know what that means? It means that archers pick up arrows and shoot them in a certain direction. And every day you are training your children how they should act in their marriage. You are giving them direction. You are giving them guidance. Don't don't think that the arguments, the blow-ups, this toxic environment that some of us create in our homes is healthy for your children. It's not. You say, ah, they don't listen to it. No, but they're seeing it. And it will carry over. Our homes ought to be... An environment of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and acceptance. Not one of judgment. Not one of anger and malice. That's not what we want. We want our children to have this, this environment that we see a husband who dearly and sacrificially loves his wife. Now I want you to see though, it all breaks down. God gave these... Adam and Eve direction. He gave them what he wanted, chapter number six, or chapter number three. He says, Well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be one man, leaving your father and mother, and I want you to cleave unto your wife. Hold to her. Hold fast to her. 
Y'all are on the same team. You're becoming one flesh. There is nothing, a few things more profound than thinking that you and your wife, though are totally different in most ways, absolutely different, and yet God wants you to be one team, one idea, one direction. And yet verse number one says, now we're going to put it in play. I mean, this is going from the huddle to the line of scrimmage. You know, at the huddle, the quarterback says, all right, everybody, we're going to do slip jack double X 64. Ready, break. And now everybody has to go to the line of scrimmage and run the play. God said, here's, here's the play. A man should cleave unto his wife, and they should become one flesh. Now notice the, the line of scrimmage. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field what, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it. Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. What broke down? The play was, we're all on the same team. The line of scrimmage, Eve starts operating completely independently. Now, this is just the way I read the Bible. At this point, Adam is not in charge. Adam is not in a, in a leadership role yet. There is no command of God that Adam should be taking the charge. The command is this. You're all on the same team. One flesh, one agenda, one direction, one motivation. You work together. And when the woman saw that the tree... Wait, where's Adam? What's sad about this is the devil calls into question the goodness of God. He says, God's holding out on you. He knows that in the day you eat of the fruit... Ye shall not surely die, but you'll be like him. What Adam and Eve should have considered is their very companionship served to memorialize that God was good. Remember, God looked at all the creation and said, there's one thing not good. What is it? Man should not be alone. So I'm going to remedy that problem with a perfect solution. I will make for him and help meet. Man, could you imagine how a pretty Eve must have been to Adam if God designed her perfectly for Adam? I mean, if you've ever had the list, I always tell people, I don't want my kids to have a red hair because nobody ever makes a list when they're younger. I want to marry someone tall, dark, and red. No, no, nobody tall, red, and handsome. Nobody ever does that. So, uh, but, but to Adam, Eve was a looker, man. God designed them for each other. The fact that they were in a relationship with one another testified of the goodness of God. If God wasn't good, Eve wouldn't be there. God said, I am good, so I will meet your needs. I will give you someone to help you. And the devil says this, yeah, but he's still holding out on you. He doesn't want you to reach your real level of fulfillment. He doesn't want you to be happy. Isn't that what sin always promises? Happiness. 
we call into question the very goodness of God, but even their relationship testified to the fact that God was good. Their companionship served as a memorial, but it also served as a motivator. When you have a team, you're working together to accomplish the same goal. You've heard the phrase, there's no I in team. Somebody said, yeah, but there isn't win. You know, when, when a team truly functions together, there's nothing more powerful. It used to be said, teamwork makes the dream work. When you work as a team, when you function together, you can accomplish more. Even the, book, uh, the Bible says that uh, there is more profit when two people are laboring together. And then it goes on to say, a threefold cord, meaning a cord that is woven, is not easily broken. More people on the team, more work done. But man, if only one guy's there and he falls, there's nobody to help him up. Teamwork is good. And God says, I'm going to make a team. One flesh, one, one goal. And the breakdown in the fall of man is, we see the first family not operating as a team. Adam not encouraging Eve. Eve not being encouraging to Adam. In fact, Eve encouraged Adam the total wrong direction. We see they break down because there was no teamwork. You know, I look at our culture, and just this last week, my daughter brought an iPad to me. On the iPad, she had the app YouTube Kids. On the first page, there was maybe nine videos or so. And of those nine videos, I would say three or four of them had something to do with Pride Month. On YouTube kids under eight years of age. I say this to, first of all, caution your parents. I did not know anything about it. My kids cannot watch YouTube kids until this thing is way in the rearview mirror. But the first video that my daughter was clicking on, she was asking me, why does this person look so funny? It was a man in drag singing a song about Pride Month. As a preacher of the gospel, I say, how did we get here? It's been said that necessity is the mother of all invention. Meaning tools are created. Changes are made because it required it. The greatest inventors of all time, they just look at a problem and say, I can fix that. And they go make something to fix that. And I wonder if the answer to the question is how we've gotten here is not a bunch of kids looked at their mom and dad's relationship and said, that's broken, it needs to be fixed. A man and a woman can't get along in their home is really no more godly than a man in a, and a man in a home. You see, a man and a wife in a toxic relationship trying to raise kids in an evil and hedonistic way, how much more pleasing to God is that than two good gay men trying to raise a child? You say, don't, don't go there, Brother Drew. It's all sin! I'm not justifying homosexuality, but I'm not going to stand up here and justify two Christian people acting like worldlians. And teaching their children how to yell at each other and how to win screaming matches. And I wonder if the answer to the question is how we've gotten here is a bunch of Christians looked at their mom and dad and said, I don't know what the fix is, but that ain't it. 
God has a design for marriage. And it is it works. It works. But just like everything in the Bible, it requires faith to wholly accept it. To believe that if you as a man will lead your home and as a wife will submit to the man's leadership. None of it's comfortable, by the way. Sometimes men don't want to make decisions. And sometimes women don't want to submit to the decisions that their husband makes. And sometimes kids don't want to shut their mouth and just do what mom and dad tell them to. None of it's easy. But listen, it works. This is the institution of the home. Next week we'll look at the infrastructure of the home. How does God allow this to operate? How does it function? What does it really look like in real life? I wonder if our homes are broken. Family matters and marriages matter. But more than the family mattering, here's the most important family that you could ever be introduced to. The Bible speaks that there is a such thing as the family of God. The family of God. Look, I don't know what your family situation is growing up. I guarantee you in a room this size, there are people that come from broken homes. There are people that come from homes that are the environments that I'm talking about. Yelling and anger and hatred and malice and all these things. You come from a place that is not good. Friend, I, I, I don't know anything about where you come from. But I know there are many people in this church that come from similar environments to that. But I will tell you, no matter what your home situation was... I am worried about what your heaven situation is. And the Bible speaks that though your family on this earth may be horrible and terrible, there is a family of God that once you are adopted into, you can know for sure you're on your way to heaven. And no, the homes aren't made here on earth, they're made in heaven. But the way you get into this family is by believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and accepting by faith His work on Calvary, on the cross of Calvary, Jesus said, it is finished. What does He mean? All the work, all the stress, all the struggle trying to keep the law, trying to live a good life, trying to be pleasing to everybody and meet all the demands of society. You can't do it. So Jesus says, all that's finished if you'll believe on this cross. And Jesus not only died on the cross, He rose again three days later, testifying of the fact that everything He said was true. In Him, we have life. and our father Adam, we all die. Today, you can be adopted in the very family of God by believing on His name. And that's the most important family that truly matters.